Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. We are taking a break out of a series that we're working through the Gospel of Mark uh, to look at the specific biblical truths of how God is sovereign over the nations. It is our custom here at Crosspoint to spend the vast majority of our time just preaching through books of the Bible. We think that's the most helpful, that's the most healthy thing that we can do as a church because it keeps us from skipping difficult topics. And it also helps us to lean heavy into God's inspiration and sovereignty over the scriptures and and his truth rather than things that we would like to talk about. And I think generally it can be very unhelpful for a congregation to sort of come up with a topic first and then come up with a bunch of verses that try and support that topic. But occasionally that can be helpful so long as the verses and the things and the points that we make about this topic are biblical. And so today we want to take a look at, as we in our nation get ready to elect a new or re-elect a president and many other congressmen and senators and elected officials, we want to take time today to think deeply about how we should posture ourselves towards God's sovereignty over the nations. And here's, here's the thing that I really want to get to today. First of all, if you came this morning um, hoping that I will uh, endorse a particular political party or campaign, um, you're, you're going to be disappointed. And so if you're on the edge of your seat waiting to hear kind of some little thing that I weave in there, um, I'm just going to let the air out of the balloon right now and it's not going to happen. Um, so surely I'm, yeah, you're disappointed. Hopefully you'll stay for lunch. Um, <laughs> Today we're going to get above the fray a bit, hopefully, and look at some overarching principles about what the Bible says, how we as Christians should view this world and our culture in these 70 or 80 or 90 years that he gives us, and how that should produce in us a sort of strange duality. It should give us great confidence in the utter sovereignty of God in all things and as he rules over the nations. But it shouldn't cause us to be sort of detached and non-caring or disengaged, but it should give us this strange sort of broken-hearted boldness to where we, above all citizens, care about this world and our country and our culture. And so my hope is to do that today and to give us hope and encouragement, ultimately, in the God who rules all things and who has displayed his rule most prominently through the death and the burial and the resurrection of his son Jesus, in whom alone we can have hope. Today I'm just skimming over the top, and so uh, we always want to equip you with great resources. There's a very thick book that we have a few of them in the Resource Center, and this is a book written by Wayne Grudem. He's a theologian that we really, really respect here, Uh, and he has a book that he put out a couple years called Politics According to the Bible a comprehensive resource for understanding modern political issues in light of Scripture. Just a couple, books, or a couple blurbs on the back of the book. It says, things that he handles in the book, is the war against terrorism a just war? Should the government encourage homosexual relationships? Does politics interfere with the gospel? And many, many other things. He talks about the protection of life, marriage, family and children issues, economic issues, environment, national defense, all sorts of things. And so this is a big, weighty book. It's not something you've got to read all the way through. It's broken down and organized very well into chapters and issues. And so if you're wondering, maybe 
you're wanting some just helpful orientation on a particular biblical issue, um, you can go straight to the table of contents and find it. We're selling these for $25. I know that's kind of expensive, but they're pretty expensive, and we just sell them at a cost. There's three or four of them in the resource center, and I'd encourage you to go get that. This one's kind of marked up. It's, I know some of you are like ready to get it because I give away books. I'm sorry. I'm not giving that one away. But there are some, some that you can buy. At, I'm sorry, John. You, had it. you were ready to go. You were quick on the draw. Well, let me read a verse to orient us, and then we'll be all over the Bible today. We're not going to be in one particular verse. I have four uh, principles, four truths that I want to... Uh, I want to help encourage us, and then I'll end with five exhortations on how Christians should posture themselves towards politics and elections in our day and age. Romans 11.36, probably my favorite verse in the Bible, says, For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Let's pray and ask the Lord to help us. Father, now as we come to think about these difficult and complex and emotional issues that surround politics and elections and uh, all that is involved, I pray for your help. Lord, I know that um, I am in many ways ill-equipped But Lord, I pray that you would help me get out of the way and that we would just think clearly and confidently and hopefully about the truths in your scripture and that we collectively as your people would be able to synthesize them and in a way that is helpful for us, in a way that will give us great hope in your sovereign rule over the nations. And Lord, In particular, on this day when we're not explicitly talking about a text where we see the work of the gospel in, I pray that you would help us, even in the midst of thinking about these truths about how Christians should posture themselves politically, I pray, God, that ultimately we would see Jesus and that we would see that the great plan of everything is you glorifying yourself by saving a people through the resurrection, life, burial, and resurrection of your Son, Jesus. And I pray, Lord, that Christians would take great hope in that truth. And I pray that friends that came into this room today that are not yet believers, they're not yet followers, they have not yet trusted in the finished work of Christ, that even on this sermon about Christians and politics and your sovereign rule, that you might soften their hearts and cause them to look up and see Jesus. Lord, I pray that you do these things for the encouragement of your people, for the glory of your name, and for the salvation of the lost. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Four truths. Here's what we're going to do. The first uh, two truths. One, I'm going to take you kind of through a survey of God's sovereign rule over the nations in the Old Testament. And then our second truth, we're going to look at God's rule over government in the New Testament, and then we're going to look at a couple reactions, a few truths at how we should react to that, and then five exhortations about how we should posture ourselves as Christians in this day and age. Principle or truth number one that we see in the Old Testament, God controls who becomes king, 
and uses them for his purposes. God controls who becomes the king, or in our case, the president, or the senator, or the congressman, or woman, or the mayor, and uses them for his purposes. Towards the beginning of the Bible, in the book of Exodus, we read about how God's people are are rescued by God from Egyptian captivity. And the means that God uses to rescue His people from the means of Egyptian captivity is not to just, in an instant, take them out of Egyptian captivity, but He starts to make life very difficult for the Egyptians, and in particular for the ruler of the Egyptians, Pharaoh, who has been uh, very badly mistreating God's people. And this is what God tells Moses to say to Pharaoh, specifically about Pharaoh's purpose in life. Listen to this in Exodus chapter 9 and verse 13. And this is in the middle of God sending these plagues to punish and to loose Pharaoh's grip on God's people so that he would obey God's word to let his people go. And in Exodus chapter 9 verse 13, it says this, Then the Lord said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning and present yourself before Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go that they may serve me. For this time I will send all my plagues on you yourself and on your servants and your people so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. Verse 15, For by now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence and you would have been cut off from the earth. So in other words, God is saying, I'm just doing this to display my glory and I'm being patient with you. I could have killed you in an instant. And then in verse 16, listen to this. This is what he's telling Moses to say to Pharaoh. But for this purpose, I have raised you up to show my power so that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Listen to that. Don't miss that. It's just sort of a a little story on a felt board in Sunday school class when you're young. God is saying to Pharaoh, I have raised you up and put you in a position where I knew that you would punish my people. In fact, I would use the punishment that you would enact, exact on my people, as a means of refining them and making them long for me rather than captivity. And I have raised you up, Pharaoh, for this very purpose, to punish you and to show my glory through rescuing my people through the hands of Moses. God is sovereign over Pharaoh. Another example from the Old Testament, we read, and this one just absolutely, uh, this, one, this one causes me to want to just, just shadow box and just kind of have Rocky theme in the back and just hit the bag in the basement. This one just gets me excited. In Isaiah chapter 45, in the midst of this time when God's people are once again in captivity, at this particular time, they are about to enter into captivity by the Babylonians. So let's just kind of review kind of where we are here in biblical history. Of course, God creates all things and he forms a people through Abraham. He creates this Hebrew Jewish nation and um, they find themselves in captivity at the beginning of Exodus and in, in Egypt. Then God rescues them through Pharaoh like we just alluded to. And then they're in the wilderness for 40 years and they wander around and then eventually he, rises, he raises up a leader named Joshua who brings him into the promised land. 
and still they have to kick out all of the people that are there, and so God's people are back in the place that God has told them to be, but still they can't, they can't follow God's ways, and so God is allowing them to be captured again by another foreign empire, this time the Babylonians, and at this time he's sending prophets, Isaiah and Daniel and Jeremiah and Ezekiel, he's sending these prophets to speak to his people, warning them to turn back to him, telling them what's going to happen, and so Isaiah in particular is a prophet during the time when God's people are about to be and then eventually will be carried away into Babylonian captivity, which then we read about in the book of Daniel where you have this king Nebuchadnezzar who carries God's people away from the promised land into captivity again. And so the whole Old Testament is sort of this picture of salvation where God rescues his people and then they disobey and they they. They don't listen to him again, and he punishes them, and all of this is under God's sovereign rule. And so now in Isaiah chapter 45, through the prophet Isaiah, God is speaking to his people, and in chapter 45, he now speaks about this king who doesn't even exist yet, this king of this other empire called the Persian Empire, which doesn't, hasn't even really constituted yet, and God through Isaiah is saying to the Babylonians and to his people, I am going to raise up another king of another people, the Persians, and this Persian empire is going to come defeat the Babylonian empire who have conquered my people, and then this good Persian king whose heart I am going to make soft towards my way, I am going to make him cause my people and allow my people to go back to the promised land so that they can rebuild the city. Right, so this is what he says, 150 years before Cyrus is even born. This is what he says in Isaiah 45. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus. So he's saying to this pagan king who isn't even born yet, who is 150 years from being born, I'm going to raise you up and you're my anointed servant whose right hand I have grasped to subdue nations before him and to loose the belts of kings to open doors before him that gates may not be closed. Friends, this is stunning. God's people are in captivity by the Babylonian empire, these, this pagan nation. And God now says to this pagan nation, Babylon, and to his people, I'm going to raise up another pagan empire, the Persian Empire, in 150 years, and I'm going to raise up a king of those Persians named Cyrus, who then I am going to cause to defeat the Babylonians and then take over my people, but I'm going to cause Cyrus to be soft towards my ways, and so Cyrus is going to have a heart to understand who I am and my will, and so then Cyrus, in the beginning of the book of Ezra, once he's defeated the Babylonian Empire and now becomes the leader of of Israel and is now the captors of Israel, now has a soft heart towards Israel and says, you, Israel, can go back to the promised land and rebuild your city and rebuild your nation. And God is saying that. 150 years before, God is sovereign over the empires. He's sovereign over the Babylonian Empire. He's sovereign over the Persian Empire. He's sovereign over the Greek, Roman, British, Russian, and American Empire. God is sovereign over Cyrus. We see also that God is sovereign over his kings. The majority of the kings of Israel and Judah 
Now we're talking not about Persian or Babylonian kings that God is sovereign over, but now God is sovereign over these kings of his own people, and even them God is sovereign. In fact, of the 40 or so kings of God's people in the book of Kings and Chronicles, uh, of those 40 or so, about 90% of them are horrible kings, terrible kings who do wicked things, but even then, God does not leave his people. We see also that God is sovereign over Nebuchadnezzar. Now going back a little bit, this Babylonian king, this is what Daniel, God's prophet, says to Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 2. Daniel's this interpreter of dreams, and Nebuchadnezzar is having these dreams, and the only one that can interpret them is Daniel, God's man. Listen to Daniel chapter 2, verse 20. Daniel's speaking to this pagan king, and he says, Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. Verse 21, he changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. And what Daniel is doing there is he is basically speaking prophetically to this king, Nebuchadnezzar, that God put you in power and God's going to take you out of power by causing the Persian Empire to come crush you so that this guy named Cyrus can now be the captor or the ruler of God's people, this Persian Empire, over Israel so that he would have a heart towards God and to allow his people to go back. God is sovereign over Pharaoh. God is sovereign over Nebuchadnezzar. God is sovereign over Cyrus. God is sovereign over the affairs of nations. Proverbs 21.1, one of the most beautiful and encouraging verses when it comes to this issue of God's sovereignty over the nation, says that the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Now you may be saying, okay, Brad, I got you. God controls who becomes king and uses them for his purpose in the Old Testament. But see, we're, we're done kind of with God's, you know, dealings with Israel in that specific way and so you may incorrectly assume that now God is not, it's in a different time of the historical timeline of redemption. And so, you know, does it really apply to modern life today? Does, it even, does this even hold up in the New Testament? It seems like in the Old Testament it was all about Israel and this sort of specific display of his glory that God wanted to do through this national Israel. But now in the New Testament it's more about the church and, you know, God's people and all that. And there's elements of truth to all of that, but... but but do we see this sovereignty of God over the nations in the New Testament? And I would say that the answer to that question is emphatically yes. And that brings us to truth number two. God ordains and uses imperfect governments for his purposes. In fact, every government is imperfect and sinful and wicked. And God ordains and legitimizes and uses while not aligning himself with government and uses it for his purpose. So we see this truth in the New Testament in Luke chapter 2. Listen to this. This is the account of Jesus' birth. And we only read this, it seems like, at Christmas. But in this, we, we have this beautiful truth of God arranging the affairs of nations, even in the story of Jesus' birth. In Luke chapter 2, verse 1. It says, in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus, the Roman emperor, that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each 
to his own town. Verse 4, And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David. And so this Roman ruler decides that it's time to have this census so that all the people that could be, could be counted. And so that causes David to go back to his hometown because you had to be there to be counted in your hometown. And so we might just read that and say, oh, well, that's kind of neat. That's a good little detail there that Luke put in there. Now let's get to the good stuff. But do you, do you realize that what's happening there is that is fulfilling a prophecy in the Old Testament in Micah where through one of his Old Testament prophets, God prophesies that this ruler of Israel, speaking of Jesus, would come out of this little tiny, obscure, humble place called Bethlehem. And so God uses this Roman ruler as a sort of pawn in his chess game causes him to want a census so that it will cause David to go from where he is back to his hometown just so that it could fulfill and confirm his word that he spoke through his prophet years ago. Friends, it's almost as if God has this thing rigged. (laughs) Because he does. God ordains and uses imperfect governments for his purpose. I think we see this probably most prominently in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 4, where we see God even ordaining the most unspeakable and heinous sin that has ever been committed, the crucifixion of Jesus, God the Son. Listen to this in Acts chapter 4. What's happened here is that Peter and John have been preaching the gospel. The the church is just beginning. It's starting to spread all throughout the Roman Empire. Obviously, the early disciples and apostles and believers are starting to face opposition. Peter and John get thrown into prison. They get released from prison. And then in Acts chapter 4, verse 23, it says this. When they were released, they went back to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted up their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. And that's a quotation of Psalm chapter 2. And listen to this, verse 27. For truly in this city, this is the prayer now of these early Christians and disciples, For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. Now listen to this in verse 28. To do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So God raises up Herod and he raises up Pontius Pilate. He puts them into positions of authority to be the players in this predetermined plan, not just for the lowering of taxes, not just for the building up or reduction of national defense, not just for the appointment of Supreme Court justices. God puts into place rulers who become pawns in his chess game for the crucifixion of God the Son. I tend to think of it this way. If, 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 if the greatest, most heinous sin that has ever been committed, if God is sovereign over that, 
then he's sovereign over everything else. And maybe this is just a simple way that my very unmathematical mind works. But if you can bench press 400 pounds, you can bench press 100 pounds, right? I work out with Paul Fincher pretty regularly in the morning, and he is quite a bit bigger and stronger than me. And, and if, if, if you can bench what Paul can bench, which is just a little bit more than I can, then you can bench what I can bench. Do you see that? And so if God's sovereignty extends over the colossal, cosmic, all-important, eternally, just the biggest truth there is of the crucifixion of God the Son, then everything underneath that is under God's sovereign rule. And God is putting rulers in place to do the very thing that He bids them to do for the display of His glory and for the good of His people. God ordains and uses imperfect governments and rulers for his purpose. And we see this teaching elaborated even further in Romans chapter 13. This is what the Apostle Paul writes to the Roman church. Before I read these words, friends, remember that the Roman government at this time is persecuting Christians. In fact, shortly after, very likely, Paul writes these words, A Roman leader by the name of Nero will rise to power. And Nero will become infamous through history for his torture and persecution of Christians. And this is what Paul writes to the Christians who are living in Rome. And he says this in Romans 13.1. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Now, there are some of us in this room who, if I were to tell you that the Republican Party has been instituted by God, and George W. Bush was instituted by God, you say, ah! And there are some of us in this room that if I told you that the Democratic Party has been instituted by God, and Barack Obama, President Obama, is in office because God, in his sovereign will, determined it to be so, you would just freak out. No, I can't, that can't be! But friends, listen to me for a second, regardless of which aisle you are on politically. And there are some, some, some things that we certainly need to discuss and be aware of as Christians, and we'll get to that in just a second. But friends, if you look at the American government and all of its shortcomings and all of the horrible things that even our government is involved in, friends, it pales in comparison to the atrocities of the Roman Empire and what they were doing at this time, especially as it concerned persecution of Christians. And God is saying through Paul... That I, even though this empire is wicked, I am legitimizing it. And there's a whole host of conversations that we could have that go beyond the purview of this message about when Christians should obey and not obey unjust laws. I get that. That's a huge issue. And this isn't to say that we're robots and we just go along with every unjust, immoral, or sinful law that our country passes. But it is to say that God has ordained even the worst of governments. And it is under his sovereign rule. I think we see this, obviously, in Jesus as well. Let's not just listen to Paul and the prophets. Let's listen to Jesus as well on this issue. And that's not to say that Jesus' words in red are more important than the rest of the Bible. It's not the point I'm making. The whole Bible is Jesus' words, right? Don't pit Paul or... or every, Jesus writes the whole Bible. You know, sometimes Christians will say, oh, I'm a red-letter Christian. Uh, 
actually, the whole Bible is written by God. And the red letters are the recorded words of Jesus when he was incarnated on earth and here with us. I just made up a word, incarnated. <laughs> Matthew 22. Listen to this. They're trying to trick Jesus into this political game. And this is an interaction Jesus has with the Pharisees in Matthew 22, verse 15. It says, Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in this talk. And they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully, and you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? And remember, friends, these Romans are oppressing God's people. Remember, we've been reading through Mark how Jesus calls a tax collector to be one of his disciples. And this tax collector is not just an, the equivalent of an IRS agent in our time. This tax collector is a Jewish man who's selling out to this oppressive Roman ruler who is, who is uh, will, in, certainly in a couple decades, persecute God's people. And so the Jews hated to be under Roman rule. They knew that God had... It was, was their God, and they hated to be in this sort of current captivity. And, and Jesus now says, he says, tell us now, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? Because they're trying to trap Jesus. If he, if he endorses Caesar and says yes in a way, they would say, oh, well, he's a, he's a sellout to the Roman Empire. And if he says no, then they could get him for treason because as living in this Roman Empire, they couldn't speak against Caesar. And so what does Jesus say to this to this question where they're trying to trap in verse 18. But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said, Caesar's. And then he said to them, Therefore render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And so what is Jesus saying when he it just sort of turns their question upside down. Jesus is, in one sense, legitimizing Roman rule because, remember, Jesus knows he's God in the flesh. He knows that all authority has been instituted by God, even horrible authority, but he doesn't endorse Caesar. His mission is not to establish a political kingdom that merely opposes Caesar's temporary political kingdom. Rather, Jesus is on a far greater and more eternal mission. He's establishing his eternal heavenly kingdom forever and ever and ever. And he's breaking into this earth. And he's not wanting to legislate from the top down, but he's wanting to transform from the inside out. So Jesus is, in one sense, legitimizing the Roman Empire, but not endorsing it. God ordains and uses imperfect governments for his purposes. Now let's look at two, two truths that synthesize these things, that really um, go to how we can take hope in this. And this is point number three. God orders the affairs of nations, but he does this for his glory and the good of his people. God not only orders the affairs of nations and raises up kings and governments, but he also 
orders the affairs of these nations and rulers for his glory and the good of his people. Listen to God in the Old Testament. Back in Isaiah chapter 46, one verse or one chapter over from where we were when we were reading about Cyrus. This is God speaking to his people and speaking to the Babylonian Empire that he is about to crush through the Persian Empire. This is what he says in Isaiah 46 verse 8. He says, remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done. So listen, friends, to us the future is uncertain, but to God it is not. God is outside of time. The Trinity is not up in heaven wringing its hands, wondering what's going to happen on November 6th or in 2016, or in 2020. God has declared the end from the beginning. And he says, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. Now, he is speaking specifically to Israel and Babylon in this context. But friends, that truth applies to everything. God will accomplish his purpose. Nothing, nothing can hold back his Hand. And now we go to the New Testament to look at this truth that God orders the affairs of nations for his glory and for the good of his people. And this verse that I imagine most of you are familiar with, but maybe we haven't thought deeply about, or maybe we've overly personalized it. And it's Romans 8.28, where the Apostle Paul says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. All things. Now friends, either all things actually means all things or it doesn't mean anything at all. Either God for his glory and for the good of his people causes Everything. Reynolds referred to it at the beginning of the service. Every little atom that hits and it collides in the furthest galaxy. Every law that is passed, even friends, and this is where it just blows my mind. Even, even every sin, every evil, every tragedy, every triumph, every, every good, every bad, everything, all things. God is colliding every emotion and every particle and every situation and every internal thought and every impulse of every leader and every decision and every cabinet and every edict, every decree from every throne that has ever been established. God, in some way, is causing it all to be woven together in his beautiful mosaic because his plan is marching towards its consummation and fruition. And that is the display of his glory through his son, Jesus, who died for his people and rose again in victory over the authorities and principalities of this, of this world. Friends, do you see the beautiful confidence that Christians should have. Friends, that is more than just a verse to get you through a bad job interview or a difficult personal situation. And it is that. Don't get me wrong. But friends, it has cosmic and universal and unending, unending consequences that all things, that no matter what happens, whether you are eaten alive by lions in the, the, the Roman Empire in the Colosseum, or, or whether things go very well for you in your 80 or 90 years, whatever the case, friends, where 
wherever you are in the span of human experience, whether it's triumph or tragedy, all things serve to work together in this beautiful mosaic that God is weaving for his glory amongst the nation's friends when we dwell, I mean, just chew on that morsel and that will cause your heart to rise with confidence in a God who is sovereign over not just the itty bitty little affairs of our lives but over the affairs of nations from the beginning of time to the end. God orders the affairs of nations for his glory and that brings us to the fourth truth and then five quick exhortations and this fourth truth is that our hope then friends should be in God and not in government. Our hope should be in God and not in government. I want to encourage us to avoid two extremes. And I think that Christians, I'm prone to both of these, and I've been in both sides of this, this ditch. I've been in both ditches, both sides of this road. The one extreme is a chicken little. You know, the sky's falling. If President Obama gets reelected, ah, it's the end of America as we know it. Or if Governor Romney gets elected, ah, it's the end of America as we know it. <laughs> Friends, please, a little historical perspective and confidence, please. There is something that is very uncompelling about the glory of the gospel in our lives when we put all of our hope in an administration or a political party. We'll talk about involvement here in just a second, but I want us to avoid the chicken little extreme, and I also want us to avoid the disengaged cynic. I'm talking to you, 30-year-old and younger, who's grown up on The Daily Show and MTV, and you get your politics from South Park, <laughs> and you're just too cool for school, right? You don't have a mortgage. You, you, you barely have an alarm clock. <laughs> and all, all of a sudden, you're just <laughs> above it all. Easy killer. Easy. God calls us to be good citizens, and we're going to talk about that in a second. And so don't just be the disengaged 30-something or 20-something or college kid. So avoid both extremes. But we should take this biblical posture. Listen to the words of Peter to Christians in the Roman Empire now closer to this persecution that is starting to be more intense amongst the Roman Empire towards Christians. And this is what he says in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11. He says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. In other words, this world is not our home. We're just passing through for 40 or 60 or 70 or 80 or 90 years. I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. In verse 13, he says, Be subject to the Lord's sake. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. 
I think what Peter is saying to Christians in that day and is saying to us is that, that live in such a way that you can have a winsome and wise and sometimes maybe even a tense conversation with people, but live in such a way as you engage in life here on this earth so that you commend eternity, not just these 80 years. Live as sojourners and exiles. And then the other thing I would say about putting our hope in God and not in government is, friends, let's not make the mistake, and I think this is common in conservative evangelical American Christianity. Let's not make the mistake of applying Old Testament promises that God gives to Israel to America today. So when we look at verses like 2 Chronicles chapter 7 and verse 14, where God is specifically in a certain situation speaking to Israel, and he says to them, if you will humble yourself and pray and seek my face and I will heal your land. Now friends, does that mean that God is not also calling us to pray and to humble ourselves and to repent and that he, he will be good to us for that? No, that's a principle that I think applies to all of God's rule over the nations. Friends, we need to be careful about reading into a sort of special destiny for America as if God just really wasn't doing it like he should be doing it until he, he, he caused America to be birthed. Friends, God does not need America. As much as I love this country and as much as I'm thankful that I was born here and as much as I want to honor the emperor and as patriotic as I think I am, our hope should be in God, not in government. And specifically, friends, our, not as, our hope is not just in a sort of vague sense of God, in a sort of patriotic sense. But our hope is specifically in a God who has come in the form of his son Jesus and has lived the life that all of us should have lived, but all of us have rebelled. You see, friends, we're not saved by conservatism or our, our liberal ideology. We are, we are saved by trusting in Jesus' perfect life, his sacrificial death, and then believing in his resurrection and how he is seated at the right hand of God and now calls everyone, everywhere, all peoples, to turn and trust in him. And so our, our, friends isn't just sort of, our, 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 hope, friends, our hope isn't just sort of in this sort of ambiguous concept of God against the systems of this world, but our hope is more specifically in God who has won a people for himself through Christ, his son's work on the cross. Friends, that's where our hope is, not just in God's sort of big, ambiguous sovereignty and power, but in his work through Jesus on the cross and his resurrection. So five exhortations now for how Christians in America should view politics and elections. Five, five quick exhortations and we'll be done. Be gracious. Be gracious to one another. There are Christians that are Republicans and there are Christians that are Democrats. And there are Christians that are independents there are Christians that are very apolitical. This is what Paul writes to Timothy. He says, The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness, that God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. My friends, that verse, I, I, grant, I think I'm taking that out of context a little bit. I'm telling you that, but I'm making a point here. Paul is speaking specifically about the defense of the gospel. 
And so don't read into that, well, I'm a Republican, so I need to be gentle so that we will repent of being a Democrat or whatever. It's not what I'm saying. I'm making the point that the scriptures commend a gentleness and a graciousness in the heart of the Christian. What aroma do our water cooler conversations at work give off? What aroma do our Facebook posts give off? We'll let that one hang there for a little bit. Does it commend a hope in God? Or even maybe if you are politically right, does it unwittingly reduce this image that you would never want to do where you are reducing down our hope into a political party? Even if you're right, just by the spirit with which you engage in the discussion, do you see how it can be unhelpful? Second exhortation on how Christians should approach these issues is be informed. Be informed. Again, 30-year-old and below. You guys know that John Stewart, The Daily Show, is not actual news, right? You guys know that? No, I'm, I'm dead serious. Like, this may, be, this may be revolutionary for some of you. The Daily Show on Comedy Central is not an actual news program. Okay? Just so you know that. Maybe funny, but it's not news. And, and do you realize that... Uh, there are very serious political issues that you, you need to think about and you need to be informed about. And so we should be informed. Second, thirdly, we should be involved. We should be involved. Daniel, the prophet Daniel, when he's speaking to Nebuchadnezzar, said this to him in Daniel chapter 4, verse 27. He said, Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquity, showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. So this man, Daniel, is, is now called by God to say, more to, Daniel, to say more to Nebuchadnezzar than just, oh, you know, God rules all authority and he sets up and tears down kings. He actually speaks against the sin of Nebuchadnezzar. And then in the New Testament, we see John the Baptist doing the same thing. In Luke chapter 3, verse 18, it says this, So with many other exhortations, John the Baptist, meaning here, he preached good news to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod done, added this to them all and locked John up in prison. So what's happening here is John is preaching the gospel, preaching repentance to all people, and specifically to the ruler Herod. He is unashamedly speaking to him about his sin, saying, hey man, you unjustly married your brother's wife, and oh, by the way, later on, that little belly-dancing teenage stepdaughter of yours, when she belly-dances in front of you and asks you, but you ask her because you're so intoxicated by her physical form, whatever she wants. Later on, Herod is going to say, okay, John the Baptist, because you preached against me and because you ticked off my wife, her mom, my stepmom's mom, I'm going to chop your head off. I know I just confused you there. But the point is, is that John the Baptist, on threat of his life and imprisonment, speaks to the sin of Herod, who later on will behead John for his preaching against his sin. 
So Christians should be more than just gracious and informed. There's time to be involved and bold, and there's time to march on the steps of the Capitol, and there's time to say no, and there's time to say as Christians, and we'll do this this, this Tuesday morning when we pray for, for that God would, would, would change the hearts of leaders to, to change their hearts on abortion. And next week when we talk about adoption, we'll talk about this. There are times when we as Christians need to take stands, and we need to be willing to be thrown into prison and even die for God's truth. So friends, this isn't just theory. This isn't just news discussions and panels talking at the end of a news show. Friends, this is time. There are times when Christians need to not just be engaged, but they need to speak to the evil of God-instituted, legitimate government, even in its wickedness, and say, you are wrong. And Christians need to have that type of boldness. And friends, it is not our privilege or right to sit idly by. So Christians need to be gracious, informed, and involved. But Christians also need to be eternal. We need to commend our hope in God and not in the American way of life. I'll summarize this line of thinking, but in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul is making this argument about marriage. And he says that husbands should marry as though, he really says this strange thing. If you don't understand what he's saying, it can sound really weird and strange. But Paul says in this discussion about marriage in 1 Corinthians 7, he says, marry as though you're not marrying. And he says, buy and sell goods as though you're not buying and selling goods. For this earthly world and system is passing away. Now, we're not saying that we know that Paul, when we read the rest of the New Testament, and we read the rest of Paul's letters, we're not saying that Paul is saying, well, be married because it really doesn't matter. It's just, this, it's just this earthly temporal institution that God has ordained just to procreate, so just got to do it. And, you know, we've got to make business decisions, so, you know, buy and sell goods. That's not what Paul is saying. Because we know later on in Ephesians and other places, he's talking about husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And so give your heart, soul, and mind to your marriage. And, and of course, we know that in other parts of the Bible, we can read how we're to be good stewards of our finances. And we're supposed to care and give generously and radically. So Paul is not saying marry as though you're not married and buy and sell goods as though you don't buy and sell goods. He's not, he's not advocating a sort of uh, don't care but what he's saying is, do all of this, be married to the glory of God, and be a husband and a wife to the glory of God, and be a businessman or woman, and buy and sell goods to the glory of God, but do it in such a way that your hands are not gripped with a white-knuckled death grip to this world, because these 70 or 80 years is not what you are ultimately made for. And so be engaged in politics, Christians. Vote, Christian, but vote as though you were not voting. In other words, vote in a such a way that your hope is eternal and not temporal in these 70 or 80 years. Vote in such a way that you live as a light of Christ in this world, but vote in such a way that you commend the eternal kingdom of God, not the temporary kingdom of an empire here on this earth. And finally, the fifth exhortation, friends, and final thing is be encouraged. Be encouraged. In Acts chapter 17, Paul is wandering through uh, Athens, and he comes across these very religious people who didn't yet know God. And he 
preaches a sermon to them. And in the middle of that, in Acts chapter 17, verse 26, it says, Paul says to them, and he, meaning God, made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. You realize that God determined the boundaries of America. He determined the boundaries of every other country. He determined their rulers. He determined when you would be born. He determined the periods and boundaries of our dwelling places and every nation that has ever existed because, again, he is working all things together for his glory and the good of his people. And he uses the means of a fallen, broken world system that he is sovereign over to display his glory either in grace for those that turn and trust in Jesus or in judgment for those that do not. And so, friends, let's live our lives in such a way that we commend God's sovereign rule over the nations. But more specifically, we commend the only truth that really matters, that God in his great mercy, is redeeming a people for himself through Jesus Christ, his son, who came as God in the flesh and lived among us a perfect and completely obedient life and laid that life down as a substitute to absorb God's judgment and wrath for all human rebellion, for the rebellion of all those and only those who would ever turn and trust in him Friends, that's why we exist. That's why governments exist. That's why kings exist. That's why presidents exist. That's why mayors and congressmen and senators. That's why cities exist. That's why economy exists. To point towards the glory of God and the work of his son, Jesus Christ, either through grace to life forevermore or judgment and separation from him forevermore, all for his glory. Where's your hope? Is it in that great, glorious truth of the gospel? Or is it in the next election? Christian, let this be a reorientation to commend and to reorient and to instill confidence in us. If you're not yet a believer, would you hear these words and would you turn to Jesus even now? Would your hope not be in lower taxes or higher taxes or more defense or less defense? And those are all worthy discussions to have. I am not, I'm not poo-pooing them at all. But would, your, would you turn now to the only Savior, the only hope? Would you turn and see Jesus, the ruler of the kings of the earth? And would you believe in him? And would you see his rule and his beauty as so much, so much more sovereign, so much more worthy, so much better than any rule on this earth? And would you believe in him? And would you turn away from trusting in false gods and your own strength? And would you love Jesus even now? Would you do that now, friend? 
Would you do that now? God sovereignly, sovereignly rules the affairs of nations, and he rules your heart even now. Will you bow down to that king eternal? Do it even now. Believe in him. Trust in him. And then live in this world in such a way that you commend the only news that really matters. And get your hands dirty in this world so that you commend, so that God can use you as a light in a dark corner to commend his eternal kingdom as you live and labor in these temporary kingdoms. Do that now, friend. Let's pray. Father, as we now close, I pray that as we sing a few songs and as we eat lunch together and as we fellowship around these tables and as we prepare to vote in a week and a half or so, that, Father, you would lift our gaze that you, would, that you would nudge the cynical, that you would temper the fearful, and you would orient our hearts towards our hope in Christ, and that that would make us the best of citizens, not the detached ones, but the best of citizens. And would you make us bold to speak truth to our nation. And God, most importantly today in my heart is that for those that do not know you, Lord, would you cause them to see Jesus, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And Lord, would they turn away from trusting in themselves and turn in faith towards Jesus. Lord, would you do these things for your glory and for the joy of your people. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.